So good morning. And we are in the middle of chapter 29. And chapter 29 is dealing with this spiritual condition of timtum halev. Timtum halev means a numb heart. That even though a person is meditating about Hashem and they understand the ideas that they meditate, their heart is not being moved. That's an unnatural condition. The natural condition is just like when you walk near a huge fire, the closer you get, the hotter you get. You don't have to do anything to get hot. That's just the natural response. That's how it is when you understand something and you meditate about it, your heart will be moved. But this is a strange spiritual condition that is not allowing the person to respond emotionally to what they know and to what they meditate. And so the altar was telling us how to get rid of this problem. And he said it's by shattering the animal soul, by shattering the sitra achra, which is obscuring the light of the divine soul. And we went method after method. We looked at, first of all, just the very fact that we identify with our animal soul puts us at the bottom of the list because the animal soul can lust after something that is against the divine will. The unclean animals, even the forces of evil, cannot do anything against Hashem's will. We're the only ones who can. And in that way, that makes us feel so distant from Him. The next thing we were to consider is the sins of our youth. That even if today we're perfect, when we were younger, we made some big mistakes. When we consider the sins of youth, we have to realize that the sin caused a blemish in the supernal worlds. And in that space, it is timeless. And therefore, it is as though the sin happened today. And true, teshuva will uproot a sin from its inception. But teshuva has many levels. And your teshuva yesterday may not be good for teshuva today. And the third thing that we looked at, for a person who's so perfect that they don't even have sins of youth, we looked at every thought every word, every deed, were each of these divinely directed? And if they weren't, that means that at that time where there wasn't divine intention, the person became a chariot, an expression for the chambers of unholiness. They became a vehicle through which the unclean forces express themselves. And not just that, when a person expresses unholiness, at the same time he feeds them, he becomes a parasitic source of energy for them. So that was another humbling thought. And if that didn't work, then there was one more thing to consider, and that was a person's dreams. Even if a person said, hey, every thought, every word, every deed I ever did was divinely directed, and I'd like to meet that person. Yeah, sorry. Oh, one second. Even if a person was able to look at every thought, every speech, and every deed and say they were all divinely directed, what about your dreams? If a person is dreaming about vanities, about worldly matters, is having nightmares, that means that when they're going to sleep at night, their soul is being tortured by the Sitra Akhra. It's not being allowed to walk those higher mansions in the supernal worlds and be availed to the secrets of the Torah. And that means that essentially there's something wrong. Even though the person is perfect, they may not be doing their best for that level. And all this is in order to bring a person to a humble heart, to crush and break the person's heart. And it's very important to, again, put it into context. Why is the person crushing their heart? Not because there's anything good about crushing the heart. That's not the point here. The point here is a person is trying to feel joy. They're trying to feel this total sense of connection with their truest space when you're in touch with your truest essence you are completely happy your life is seamless you are buoyant you have the energy you need to take on any task in the struggle with the dark side but what happens is a person comes to identify with their superficial external self and in doing so their heart becomes numb and they cannot access their deepest space So to break the superficial self that the person comes to identify with, they have to break their heart. They break their heart 
just in order to access their truest, deepest self so that they can feel joy. It's so, so important to remember this. It's not that crushing is great. It's that joy is great. And crushing is allowing us to access our truest space and reach that deep joy. So we are at the bottom of page six. If you have it printed out. Vihine, koma sheyarich be'inyanim elu b'machshavtai. The longer he reflects on these matters, both in his thoughts, so it's not just enough to, you know, hear about it and then move on. No, if a person really wants to break their heart, they have to think about it deeply. They have to take it to heart so that it moves them. And by delving deeply into books which speak of these matters. So if all those things that Altareva told us in this chapter wasn't going to do it for you, then he says, okay, time to hit the books. Find books that are going to describe to you the lowliness of man, their distance from the creator, and allow that to break your heart, to break that superficial sense of self, that ego that's not allowing you to get in touch with your deepest space. Now, it's a really important, um, it's a really interesting concept that when you set out to meditation, you kind of have to have an idea of what you are setting out to accomplish in that meditation. Because the very same meditation might bring you to a different space. Like for example, a person might meditate about Hashem and they'll suddenly be in rapturous love. They may have the same meditation of Hashem and suddenly be in a state of trembling awe. What's the difference? It's the same meditation that's bringing them different sensations, different movements of the soul. That's what they set out to accomplish in the beginning of their journey. So when the person is looking in the books, they have this goal in mind. They're reading these stuff so that they can break their ego. They can break that outer superficial self so that they can access their truest, deepest space. In order to break down his heart within him and render himself shamed and despised in his own eyes, as is written in the scriptures, so utterly despised that he despises his very life. Wow. (laughs) That's strong. And we have to remember that when he says despises his very life, it doesn't mean his true life. The Alter Rebbe himself said earlier in Tanya, in chapter 2, that the nefesh hashenis b'Yisrael, the second soul that every Jewish person has, is chelak eleka mimal mamish, is literally a part of the divine. At our essence, we are infinite. We have infinite potential. We have infinite holiness. We are infinitely priceless. In the beginning of the Torah, how does the Torah start out? Bereshis bara Elohim In the beginning, Hashem created heaven and earth. And Rashi quotes from the sages. Bereshis stands for Bishfil Rashis. For two things that were called Rashis, the beginning was the world created. One of those two things that are called Rashis are the Jewish people. The Navi Yirmiyahu says. The Jewish people are holy to Hashem. They are the beginning of His produce. The other thing is the Torah, which is called Rashis Darko, the beginning of His way. So we understand the preciousness of the Jewish soul, that all of creation was wrought for Him. So when we're saying to despise His very life, we mean to despise this fake life, to despise this superficial self, to break it so He can get in touch with His truest, deepest self. This is not in any way to undermine the worthiness of a Jewish person. A Jewish person is infinitely worthy, has infinite potential, is literally a child of Hashem. But when we say despise his very life, we mean despise this superficial self that he has become so deeply identified with. And this reminds me of the story of Acher, the tragic story of the sage gone heretic, Alicia Benavuya. Alicia Benavuya lived a very tragic life, and he, he was called Acher, and Acher means the other one. He was called Acher actually by a prostitute who, when he came to get her services, and she said, could this be 
the great sage Alicia Benavuya. It didn't make sense that Alicia Benavuya would be seeking her services. And it was Shabbos, and he plucked a radish. And she thought he wouldn't pluck a radish on Shabbos. Acher who? Somebody else. Acher means somebody else. And that name stuck with him. He was no longer called the great sage. They didn't even refer to him by his name. They called him Acher, the other one. Now, everybody left him except for his own student, Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Meir was a unique soul that was able to take the good and leave the bad. Generally, we're not allowed to do that and we don't have the capability for that. We're not able to do that. Halacha says that unless somebody is like a malach, unless somebody is Torah true in their behavior, even if they're so brilliant, even if they know so well, we don't learn from them unless they are sterling in their character. So everybody left him, but Rabbi Meir, his student, didn't leave him, and he used to learn from him. One time it was Shabbos, and Elisha Benavuya, Acher, was riding on his horse. And who's walking alongside him? His student, Rabbi Meir. He's learning from him as he is riding the horse on Shabbos. And they're in this discussion, this Torah discussion. Suddenly, Acher turns to his student, Rabbi Meir. And he says to him, Meir, chazor bacha. Meir, go back. I was counting with the footsteps of my horses, of my horse. I was counting with the gallops of my horse that we reached Tuchum Shabbos. Tuchum Shabbos is 2,000 Amis. You can't walk past the city limits. I know that we reached the city limits. It's Shabbos. You need to go back. He's reminding his student to be careful not to walk outside of the Tuchum on Shabbos. So Rabbi Meir takes the opportunity and turns to his teacher and he says, You chazor bacha. You go back. You do teshuva. He was so pained that his teacher was in such a sorry state. And he said, no, for me, it's too late. I was riding my horse behind the Kodesh HaKadashim on Yom Kippur. And I heard a voice come out and say, Shuvu banim shayvavim chutzme acher. Return, O wayward children, except for acher. Now, there's two versions of this, of this story. One is from the Talmud Bavli, the Babylonian Talmud, and one is from the Talmud Yerushalmi the Jerusalem Talmud. They say this story exactly the same way except one little detail. In one of them it says, Return away where children except for Acher. And in the other one it says, Return away where children except for Elisha Ben Avuya. So what did the voice say? Did it say, Return wayward children except for Acher? Did it say, Return wayward children except for Elisha Ben Avuya? What it said was, return, O wayward children, except for Acher. Leave your fake self behind. You are not Acher. Leave that behind and return to me. But Elisha Benavuya so deeply identified with Acher, with his fake self, that he heard, return everybody except for you, except for Elisha Benavuya. He thought he was Acher. He wasn't Acher. He was Elisha Ben Avuya. And that's what we say right now when we're saying, crush the heart, that's not you. Despise the life, that's not you. That life that you're despising, that's your fake self. Crush it so that you can access your truest, deepest self. Okay, so he totally crushes himself to the point that he despises his own life. The more he despises and degrades the Sitra Akhra. So the more he crushes his own heart, the more he casts down the Sitra Akhra. And casting it down to the ground and humbling it from its haughtiness and pride and self-exaltation, wherewith it exalts itself over the light of the divine soul's holiness, obscuring its radiance. So as soon as you crush it, you take away its power. What is it? We learned earlier in the chapter, it's nothing except for arrogance. There's nothing to it. 
So how do we nullify it? How do we get rid of it? By casting it down to the ground, by crushing it, and then we render it powerless. It really should have no power. As soon as a divine soul shows up, it should totally melt away. The only power that it has is its arrogance. It's a complete lie. It doesn't lie to you. It is a lie. And to get rid of it, we need to crush it and totally nullify its existence. And once we do that, we render it powerless from obscuring the divine light of our soul. Now, we're going to move to a different position that's going to be easier. Because until now, we were working from position one. Where we were so deeply identified with our animal soul that it came to be as if us. And therefore, we had to crush our own heart. But now we're moving to a higher vantage point. Now we're talking in second person. Now we're talking to a force outside of us. Vigam yarim aleha biko ra'ash viregez lahashpila. He should also thunder against it, the Sitra Akhara, with a strong and raising voice in order to humble it. Kemaima Razal, La'ilam Yargiz Adam Yeter Taiv Al Yeter Hara, Shanamar Rigzu Vigaimar. As our sages state, a person should always rouse the good impulse against the evil impulse, as it is written, rage and sin not. So King David writes in Psalms, David Hamelch writes in Tehillim, Rigzu al techatau, rage and don't sin. The simple meaning is you can translate Rigzu as rage, you can also translate it as tremble. That means that you tremble in awe before Hashem. And then when you're in awe of Him, you'll never sin. But in the Talmud, the rabbis say, Rigzu al techatau, this teaches us that a person should always Incite his Yetzer Tov, his good inclination, against his Yetzer Hara, his evil inclination. Normally, rage is out of the question. Rage is one of those traits we're never, ever supposed to have. But in this particular instance, rage is good. The Rambam and Hilchas Deis, the laws of character development, he tells us different traits. The Yitzchel says the same thing. Different traits and where you're supposed to be in the medium. There are truth. Two traits that you're supposed to just stay far away from. And that is rage and arrogance. So normally, rage is off the table. You're never ever supposed to rage. But in this particular instance, it is appropriate. The brought to prove him that to Hillem, Rage and do not sin. So how does, what does this look like? This means that one should rage against the animal soul with his evil impulse. And this rage, as we're going to see upcoming in the text, is in his mind. With a voice of stormy indignation in his mind, meaning you don't actually verbally yell at it with your words, but in your mind you become so angry that you start raging against the Yetzir Hara. Now, the altar of it says like this, to rage in his mind against the animal soul, which is his evil impulse. And it's important to understand these two terms. There's the Yetzir Hara, everybody's used to that term, the Yetzir Hara, the evil inclination. And then there is the Nefesh HaBahamas, the animal soul. They are not one and the same. The Yetzir Hara is a force of the animal soul. The animal soul itself has more than just the inclination to evil. The animal soul itself is an entire personality of mind and emotions, and its function is to become aware of, to relate to, to have emotional response to the world, to worldly matters. And included in the animal soul is even good traits. Jewish people are naturally kind, just, have some, just as some families have a propensity for music, for art. It's a talent. So too, Jewish people have certain talents that are part of their physical animal makeup. And one of those is kindness. And that comes from the animal soul. So the animal soul is an entire personality that has a mind and a heart. And the force for evil, the lust after evil in this animal soul is the Yetzir Hara. And right now we're just kind of using them interchangeably. The animal soul and the Yetzir Hara. So he rages at it in his mind. And he says to it, Lai Merlai. 
Saying to it, Indeed, you are truly evil and wicked, abominable and loathsome and disgraceful and so forth, using all the epithets by which our sages have called it. So the person starts raging at his animal soul. He's calling it every name in the book. The Talmud gives all these names for the Yetzirah Hara, and you can add your own, all these things. Why are you saying these bad names to the animal soul? Why are you saying these bad names to the Yetzirah? Because the Yetzirah disguises itself in clothing of beauty so that we can feel a kinship to it. It dresses itself up so beautifully so that we feel like we're related to it. We like it. We want it. It's like imagine you're reading a novel and the main character in the novel is the princess. And she has this terrible friend, this best friend supposedly, who's actually her enemy. And her enemy is constantly defaming her, stealing her money, telling her bad things, getting her into trouble all the time. But she thinks it's her best friend and she doesn't realize that behind her back she's constantly backstabbing her and you're reading this novel and you're getting angry at this enemy and you're screaming to the princess and you're saying please this is not your best friend this is your enemy but you can't scream to the princess because she's in the book guess what we are the princess and that enemy that we think is our best friend is the Yetzir Hara. And we think it's beautiful, but it's ugly because she's constantly dressing herself up in sophistication, in charisma, and any type of attraction that makes us feel in intellectualism, any type of something that makes us feel like she's beautiful, but she's not beautiful. She's ugly. And we need to extract ourselves from her clutches and disentangle ourselves because we think she's beautiful. We feel a kinship to it. So no, we have to stop and we need to rage against it in our mind. And we have to scream, you are wicked, you are abominable, you are loathsome, you are disgusting, you are evil. Every single name that the Chachamim gave it in order to extricate ourselves and to stop identifying with it. The Alter Rebbe stresses Be'emes, truly. And this is because we learned previously in chapter 9 that the animal soul in its source really just wants the best for the person. The Alter Rebbe brought over there the analogy of the Zohar, of the prostitute that's hired by the king to test the crown prince. The king hires her in order to test his beauty of character. She doesn't want him to fail. She doesn't want him to fall into her clutches. She wants him to resist her so that he can prove his sterling character and the king will be more happy with her. That's in its source. But as it comes to being clothed in the body, it's truly, truly wicked. And if we don't think of it that way, we're never going to disentangle ourselves. We're gonna think, nah, it's really good. It really wants the best for us. No, bet MS, truly it is all those terrible names. Truly it wants the worst from us. We need to disentangle ourselves from us we need to disentangle ourselves from it. We need to have clarity. We need to say, truly, you are abominable and loathsome and disgusting. There's nothing good about you. I want no relationship with you. I feel no kinship with you. I'm not your best friend. You're my enemy. And what does this continuous rage look like? How long will you obscure the light of the blessed Ainsof? Hamimale kol almin, which pervades all worlds. The Zohar says, Lace asar panoimine. There is no space devoid of him. Hashem pervades all worlds. Haya haive vihiye which was, is, and will be the same. Hashem totally transcends time. Time is just another creation. He never changes. He is exactly now as he always was. Even in the very place where I stand, just as the light of the blessed Ein Sof was alone before the world was created, utterly unchanged. So think of how the world was. Think of how existence was before the world was created. All there was 
was Hashem. He filled and pervaded every single space there was. There was nothing else besides him. Guess what? After creation, it's exactly the same. Hashem fills and pervades all of space. Even the space that we are right now. He is totally and completely present here. When Hashem is totally and completely present, nothing else exists. Nothing else has significance. If you're going to fill a room with something of supreme value, and then there is a speck of dust in the room, does the speck of dust exist? Technically, yeah, but no, it has no existence. And for us, technically, no. (laughs) Really, there is no other existence besides for Hashem. So Hashem pervades all of reality. Nothing changed. Just as he was one alone before creation, he is still the only existence, one alone, after creation. Kemaisha Kasav, Ani Hashem Leishanisi. As it is written, the prophet Malachi says, I, Hashem, have not changed. This is a great foundation of faith. This is a principle of our faith that Hashem never changes. And it doesn't just mean that he doesn't grow older, that he doesn't undergo changes. It means that his oneness never ever changes. Hashem is exactly one now as he always was. He is the only existence. The fact that creation has wrought no change in him for is because he transcends time and so on. And therefore, the fact is that now, after creation, cannot affect him. You know, you say Hashem transcends time. It's not just because he is eternal, that he lasts forever and therefore he transcends time. No, it's much more than that. He doesn't come to be under the confines of time. Time is a creation and we cannot understand that because we're in this matrix of time. But Hashem totally transcends it. He doesn't come to be confined to it. He is totally one and unique, the only existence. He never undergoes changes. And yet, we don't feel it. And why is that? So we continue to shout at our Yetzir Hara, at our animal soul. But you, repulsive one, and so forth, deny the truth which is so plainly visible. And that is, that all is, no, is truly as nothing in his presence. A truth which is so apparent to be visible to the eye. Okay? So there is a truth here. The truth is that there is nothing else besides Hashem. The truth is that Hashem fills all of reality and transcends time. He is one alone now after creation as he was before creation. This truth is so apparent as to be visible to the eye. Now tell me, do you see Hashem? Is that visible to the eye? So we see in Eov, there's a verse like this. It goes, Mipsari Echazeh Eloka. From my flesh, I see God. Literally see God. Look at your own self. You're a body, right? Is that who you are, your body? You know you're just more than flesh and bones. There's something more to you. You are keenly aware of a spirit within you that not just gives you the breath of life, but gives you your unique essence. The fact that you love, the fact that you could be worried or disgusted, the fact that you could be joyful and ecstatic, the things that you like, the things that you don't like, your unique mindset, your unique essence is more than a body. You are so aware of the spirit within you, your unique essence that gives you life, your soul. You know you're more than flesh and bones. Do you see your soul? You don't see your soul, but you are so absolutely certain of your soul, of your life energy, of your unique essence, that it's as though you see it with your eyes. Seeing is something unique. When you see something with your eyes, 
you become so sure of it with absolute certainty that there's no way to talk you out of it. Like you're alone in a room. There's no windows, there's no doors, and all of a sudden there's a person in front of you. And someone will come to you and say, hey, that person cannot be in front of you because there was no way he could have gotten into the room. There's no windows, there's no doors, there's a roof, and besides five minutes ago he was in Australia. I don't care, but I see him. Nothing that you're going to tell me is going to talk me out of it, even if I can't explain it logically, because I see it with my eyes. When you see something with your eyes, it's etched so deeply within your soul with such absolute certainty that nothing's going to talk you out of it. So even though you cannot see your soul with your eyes, you're so sure of it as though you've seen your soul with your eyes. It's like you see your soul. You don't see it because it doesn't have physical properties, so it cannot be detected by your eye, but... You see it because you're so certain of it like you've seen it with your eye. Now, let's take this over to the universe. Look at this world that is pulsating with life energy. Look at the movement of the planet, of the stars, of the sun. Look at the animal life, the plant life, the power to produce human life. This world it's constantly revolving with movement with life energy the rambam maimonides in marin the guide for the perplexed calls the world guf gadol a large body just as the body only lives and breathes because of the soul essence within it and deteriorates and rots away when there is no soul The universe, too, has a divine soul, and that is God himself. There is a divine energy that is literally sending energy into the world at all moments. That constant movement, that life energy, the plant life, the animal life, you see the pulsation of energy constantly, the movement, the life, that, when you look at that, You see the divine. You are actually able to see the divine when you see the movement in the universe. It is so clear that you can actually see it with your eyes. Just like you see your soul with your eyes, even though not physically. You can see the divine with your eyes. And that's why the mitzvah to believe in Hashem is not about believing that he exists. For that, you don't need belief. That you can see with your eyes. Just like nobody's gonna command you to believe that you have a body and to believe that you have a soul, nobody has to command you to believe that God exists. For that, you just need eyes. If you see how the Rambam describes our forefather Abraham becoming aware of the God of the universe, he calls him in the words of the strong man when this strong man when he was just weaned he noticed how everything revolved and he was wondering who is moving it all but he was mired in idolatry with his father and his mother and all the people of his time were serving idols and he didn't have a teacher to teach him so he incessantly thought about it morning and evening literally was in his mind constantly until he realized that there is one power that moves everything and that is Hashem. So just like we can see our soul, we can see Hashem. It is so plainly clear that there is a God. And yet, the chutzpah of our animal soul tries to hide this truth from us. Doesn't that make you mad? The animal soul is so bad, not just because it tries to make you sin. It's so bad from a step higher than that. It's so bad because it's trying to hide the truth from you. It's not letting you see what you should be seeing. Imagine your boss sent you a check and the messenger is withholding the check. That's exactly it. It's us. It's ours for the taking. And the animal soul has the chutzpah of raising itself up above the eye of the divine soul not letting it see this truth that is so plainly visible to the eye. And this is the cause for the rage. The person is crushing the animal soul, 
trying to get it down, cast it down, nullify it so it no longer exists. Nullifying the animal soul consists of destroying its arrogance. And now we're raging in our mind against it. And we're saying, you disgusting one that I feel no kinship to. I don't want to identify with you anymore. You, you have the audacity to dare hide the truth to me from me that is so visible to the eye. Now, when a person does this, he comes to a new space. Okay, before we move into the new space, I want to sum up what we said until now so we can now move to this next section. Okay, we're on this trajectory of crushing this falsehood that numbs our heart so that way we can get in touch with our deepest space within ourselves and with the deepest truth of all. And we did this in this class by raging at the animal soul in our mind. First, we were going to break the animal soul by identifying with it and reading even books in order to make us realize how lowly we are on our superficial self. And then we were taking a second person position and we were yelling at our animal soul in our mind, not verbally, but raging at it in our mind and screaming at it and saying, you are loathsome, you are terrible, you are wicked. How dare you hide this truth from me that is so plainly visible to the eye. Now, when a person, we're doing all of this in order to heal ourselves from the spiritual ailment of a numb heart. Normally when a person undergoes some type of therapy, some type of medical treatment, it's only to bring them back to normal. So they take the medication and now they're back to normal. They're just as good as everybody else. It doesn't now, the therapy that they undergo doesn't make them better off. It just makes them back to normal. But what we're talking about here, this spiritual treatment gives a person an advantage. Not only does it get them back to normal, that now their heart is not going to be numb anymore, it actually gives them a special spiritual advantage that they have a bonus that they didn't have before they underwent this therapy. In order to see what this new bonus is that they have, let's look at two ways of taking in information. One way is, like we've explored before, seeing. When you see something, it is so sure to you, it reaches a place that is deep within your soul. There's a unique bond that happens with something when you see it with your own eyes. Like imagine your friend went to an art museum and your friend is not just a professional artist with a unique appreciation of art, but also extremely articulate. So she comes back from the art museum and she says, I want to tell you about this painting that I saw. And she goes on to describe it in such vivid colors with such vivid imagery that you literally can picture that painting in your mind. It's kind of like you saw it. You have it in your mind. Nevertheless, when you will see that painting with your own eyes, you will experience a newer and deeper pleasure just for the fact of beholding it with your eyes. It looks exactly as you pictured it in your mind. And yet, when you see it yourself, something new happens. It reaches deeper within you. The other way of taking in information is by hearing. You hear about something from a credible source, from two highly credible witnesses. You totally trust them. There's such a certainty and nevertheless, the certainty that you will reach will not be the same certainty as if you saw it with your own eyes. When you see it with your own eyes, no amount of questions or doubts is going to take it away from you. I saw it myself. I don't care what you tell me. That's why we have a law. Aim aid nasa dayan. A witness cannot be a judge. If he witnessed the murder, he can't sit on the trial. Why? I'm going to listen, listen to all the witnesses. I'll hear what the lawyers have to say. Then maybe they'll convince me otherwise. Oh, no, they won't convince you otherwise. If you saw it yourself, he doesn't stand a chance. Because you saw it. Nobody's going to talk you out of it. On the other hand, when you understand something, which is the same venue as hearing about something, it could be so certain in your mind. And yet, if somebody will raise enough questions, it might lower its certainty in your mind. So 
Let's see what happens when a person manages to crush their animal soul and cast it down so that they no longer identify with it. In this way, he will help his divine soul. In doing so, he now allows his divine soul to reach a new level of connection with Hashem. When he casts down his animal soul, he gives his divine soul a new chance of a new level of connection with Hashem. And you're going to say, one second, what new level of connection with Hashem? The divine soul is already connected with Hashem. What new level? And that's because there's two levels to our soul. There's the soul as it is in the supernal worlds. Over there, it has a vision of Hashem. However, the part of our soul that comes to be invested within our body is totally enveloped with our animal soul, within our animal soul, and our animal soul has this ability to cover over its eyes so that it no longer has this vision of the divine. Every single person has this unique connection and bond with Hashem. Faith is something that's embedded deep within the Jewish soul. You'll find it all the time. People who you know, supposedly have no connection, they don't consider themselves religious, but they have this space within them that is so deeply connected. Like, you know the joke about the atheist father who wants to send his kid to the best school in town, so he's not going to send him to the public school, he needs to send him to a private school. But which private school? He's not going to send him to the Jewish private school, so he sends him to the Catholic private school. And the kid comes home from the first day of school and he starts speaking to his father what he learned in school. And he starts speaking about a mother and his, fa- his father gets livid. And he grabs the kid by the shirt collar and he says, listen, boy, I'm going to tell you this once and I'm never going to say it again. There is only one God and in that one God you don't believe. And that's the Jewish nature. Our soul as it is above totally sees Hashem. The problem is that as it becomes clothed within the body, this clear vision that it has is obscured. When we crush our animal soul, we allow it to reach our divine soul to reach new heights. Enlightening its eyes to perceive the truth of the unity of the infinite light of the Ein Sof, as though with physical sight, and not merely through the lesser perception of hearing and understanding. Crushing the animal soul allows the divine soul to have a new level of perception of the unity of Hashem. The fact that Hashem is totally one and unchanged and pervades all space is something that to some level we can understand. Understanding is not the same thing as seeing. Seeing is a whole new level of certainty. Rabbi Steinsaltz tells a, a story, kind of a comical but true story, of a prominent Zionist who, after 30 years of working in Germany, finally came to the Holy Land. And in his speech in Tel Aviv, he admitted to the crowd I'm so glad to say that all those lies that I've been spreading for the past 30 years are actually true. At last he saw the Holy Land by himself. There's nothing like seeing it for yourself. It's not like you have new information. It's the same information, but suddenly you have a direct perception You're suddenly experiencing the things which you knew until now. It takes it to a whole new level. Until now, you might have studied about the unity of God. Until now, you might have understood it. It might have moved you emotionally. But once the animal soul is shattered, the divine soul reaches a new level of connection with Hashem that she can actually perceive it as if with physical vision. A new level of perception in the unity of Hashem, that it totally reaches so deeply into the soul as if the person has seen it himself. So I'm going to wrap it up what we said until now and I'm gonna open up for questions and discussion. 
So the person now is reaching a new level. And that is that until now they might have understood and they might have even understood deeply. And Hashem is one alone and unique. And I'm so aware of it as though I've seen it myself with my physical eyes. So that's where we got up to until now. And now I'm opening up for questions and discussions. Everybody's camera uh, microphone is off. So if you can just turn it on for a question. And I have one, one other question. Sure. You're saying how like rage and arrogance, there really is no room for unless in this case you're using the rage to rage against the Yitzhah Barah. So is there a place for arrogance in terms of like an arrogance in, in believing in the truth like that there's, you know, nothing can shatter that feeling of strength that comes from that? Like, is, is that like the wrong word to use for that? that connection to the truth or is there just really no room for arrogance so it, it's arrogance is so is such an interesting thing you know um it says that a talmud chacham a torah scholar needs to have an eighth of an eighth of pride very very little pride another thought about pride is the talmud says bishamta de ispe bishamta de lespe a person who doesn't have any who has pride should be excommunicated if he doesn't have any pride he should be excommunicated. <laughs> what is that? Between a rock and a hard place. Should you have pride or you shouldn't have pride? There's a story of a Hasidic master who was so self-humbling and he was such a humble person that somebody came over to him and said, I don't understand. It said a Torah scholar should have an eighth of, a, an eighth of pride. And he said, listen, he's going to come to the next world and either one of two things will happen. Either they're going to say, look, you were such a great Torah scholar, but what happened to your eighth of an eighth of pride? We can't find it. On the other hand, he's afraid that they're going to say, we see plenty of plenty of the eighth of an eighth of pride, but where is the Torah scholar? He said, I'd rather the first scenario than the second scenario, so I'm erring on the side of caution. On the other hand, again, in the... The, sto- the theme of pride. There's a story of a chassid, I think it was of the Alter Rebbe, that they said his pride was his merit. Because anytime the Yeter Hara would try to convince him to do something bad, he would say, do you see who you're starting up with? Somebody of my dignity, of my caliber, would never sin. Of course I wouldn't. So for him, his pride, he used it for holiness. So in general, pride is out of the question. But we need, why did, the Torah was given on Har Sinai, which is a small mountain. If humility is so important, maybe the Torah should have been given on a plain, on flat land. No, there needs to be that certain sense of pride, of self-confidence, of assertion so that you can go out and accomplish. But again, it's just an eighth of an eighth. So you, you need that, but... You know, all too often it happens that people get swept away in ego and pride, and that's to be treated with utmost caution. It seems so that, hi, it seems so that arrogance is different. What's the difference between pride and arrogance? So, so what you're... I understand having a little bit of pride. I under that 164, that little bit you know, of motivating, but arrogance seems much more negative. Yeah, I agree with you. You're saying like there's a difference between self-confidence and arrogance. Self-confidence you need to have. Arrogance, none of it, really none of it. It's just, it's it's just so unbecoming. It's not fit for a Torah scholar. It's not fit for a Jewish person. I mean, you should see how the Rambam, you know, speaks about the character traits that a person has and and look the greatest of all men was the humblest of all men you know Moshe Rabbeinu was considered the most humble man on the face of earth so it's it seems ironic but it's not ironic it's it's the depiction of the deepest truth that the greater the person is the more humble they have to be you know, but I, I have just related to that because uh-huh. I, I have, I like study a little with someone who, um, and I've had this said to me before where they feel like I'm pushing my way 
and I feel like it's not my way, but it is the way. Um, but, so there's kind of, it feels to them like there's an arrogance in that, you know, like, like I know the way, but I mean, I just am t like going towards the truth like everybody else, but somehow to, you know, to them, it feels like, oh, it's my way that I'm pushing on them. And that comes with a, like, I don't know, I, I, I don't want it to be like a prideful thing, but there is one way. <laughs> right. And that's when a person is a total humility, look how, um, you know, Maishu Rabbeinu, Moses, how he admonished the Jewish people towards the truth. It wasn't about him. It's like that in everything, in parenting. You can do the same thing as a parent, but in one way it's ego-driven, and in the other way it's humility-driven. Like a parent who feels like a child needs a timeout. Their one way is like, just get this kid out of my face. He's giving me a headache, and he's throwing a tantrum, and I don't have patience for him. Straight to your room. The other way is... Wow, this kid is overwhelmed right now, completely overstimulated, and needs some time away to relax, and so he needs to be in his room. It's that surety of what he needs, but it's not coming from pride, it's coming from humility and being totally in tune to what the other person needs. So even though you're totally confident about what they need, it's not coming from pride, it's coming from truth. And that's different. There has to be a confidence in conveying the truth. Going back to the, the seeing and the hearing, especially the seeing, but, we, but in the Shema, it's, it's, it's the hearing, right? Can you? It's very interesting that you say that, right? Shema means, listen, take this to heart. We're actually, when we say Shema, we're speaking to ourselves. We're saying, Shema Yisrael, listen, you Jewish person. Hashem Elokeinu. Hashem Yudke Vavke, that transcendent. God is Elokeinu, our imminent God, the one that manifests himself in nature. He's one, Hashem Echad. And that's actually a point of faith, because for us to totally realize that is very, very difficult. Faith is what your mind can't understand. For understanding, you need to understand whatever you could understand. But what do you use faith for? Faith is for what's just beyond your mind. Whatever you could understand, you need to understand. You cannot rely on faith for that. The Torah says, Da es avicha. Know the God of your fathers. Know him. That will change you. When you know something, will change you. But then what's faith? Faith is what's just beyond the limits of your mind. And one of those points of faith is very hard for the human mind to grasp the transcendence of Hashem and how that God that we totally cannot understand, he's totally unfathomable, is the very same God that took us out of Egypt and that relates to us in everyday life. That's something that we can rely on faith for. However, when you say that Shema is about hearing, Shema also stands for, the letters Shema stands for, Se'u marom enechem. Raise your eyes heavenwards. This is a verse from Yeshaya. And the verse continues, Ure'u mi bara'ela. And see who created all of these. So it's interesting that you say that because Shema, yes, it's about hearing, but there's an allusion to seeing too. Raise your eyes heavenwards and see who created all of these. And it reminds me of a story that happened in Russia where at one point they used to make all these laws against the Jews. They were trying to kind of get a hold on them. They were so uncontrollable, the indomitable spirit, the indomitable soul of the Jews, you know. So they said, okay, from now on, all Jews have to wear a casquette, a casquette and it has to have a brim. So the Hasidim were thinking, why in the world are they trying to make us wear a hat with a brim? Oh, we know why. They don't want to allow us to raise our eyes heavenwards and see who created all of these. And so they wore their cap backwards. If you think the teenagers came up with a backwards baseball cap, <laughs> the Hasidim did this years ago in Russia. They put their cap backwards so that they can raise their eyes heavenwards and see who created all of this. It's so amazing to see everybody's beautiful faces. Thank you so much for coming. And next week will be our last class until after the Chagim. <laughs>